You're listening to Bible Prophecy Daily, a weekday podcast where Bible prophecy matters and matters greatly. Why the Bible teaches a literal, physical temple in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, not a figurative, spiritual temple. You know, why do I believe that Paul refers to a literal, physical temple uh, mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4? There's a lot of... Believers that come from, namely a historicist point of view, historicism is the eschatology that teaches that <clears throat> a lot of these prophetic events are more interadvental. They're, they're being fulfilled from Christ's first coming to his second coming. And I'm not a historicist. Um, there are some type of prophecies that obviously are being fulfilled interadvental, but when we're talking about events that are in proximity to the second coming of Christ. The Antichrist, Great Tribulation, for example. Uh, I see these as in the future. And what's been associated with the Antichrist's arrival, his future arrival, is that he is going to utilize a temple to for his... Uh, abominations and to blaspheme God and to exert his authority. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to maybe give just a little bit of context before I give you my reasons why I believe it's referring to a literal temple, not not merely a, a spiritual or immaterial, figurative, what have you, temple. So in 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 the second epistle. Thessalonians, Paul received word back that there was some false teaching in the church, teaching them that the day of the Lord had already come, or at least is already happening at that time. And and Paul writes back to correct their defective eschatology and to say, no, the day of the Lord, that's still in the future. You're not experiencing God's judgment. One of the arguments that Paul uses or evidence to teach that the day of the Lord had not arrived is that he he teaches that two events, they're basically kind of a two-fold event. They, they, it has to happen before the day of the Lord begins. And, <clears throat> and these two events are, uh, there's going to be a particular or, or a discernible, specific apostasy that has to happen first, which is associated with the Antichrist revelation. Now, some people try to disconnect these two events. Uh, In my book, I actually argue, my book, Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord, uh, I argue that, no, these two events are closely associated with each other. But let me just read the the text that leads up to verse 4, beginning verse 1. And in one sense, again, I understand it's a bit arbitrary to start at verse 1 because really the full context begins at the beginning of of um, the epistle. But let me let me just for the sake of time here, beginning verse 1, and I, I think it does give us at least enough uh, context for our purposes. 
verse one says, now concerning the coming, the Greek word behind that is parousia, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. That's a reference back to Paul's rapture teaching in first Thessalonians chapter four. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, um, I think a better rendering should be apostasy there, in other translations have apostasy, uh, unless the rebellion or apostasy comes first and the man of law, and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction uh, who opposes and exalts himself this is now verse four uh, who, which will describe this man of lawlessness who we call the Antichrist Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay. Uh, By the way, the the Greek word behind temple there is naos. And I'm going to be explaining that in a moment. In this text, Paul associates the Antichrist revelation with him taking his seat, that is the Antichrist is going to be taking his seat in God's temple, displaying himself as God. So, um, of course, this implies, obviously, logically implies, a temple has to be rebuilt before he takes his seat there. And... um, in pre-wrath eschatology, and even you know, in pre-tribulationism as well, in post-tribulationism, we see that the this abomination of desolation event, the the, the revelation of the Antichrist, will happen at the midpoint of the of this future seven-year period. So the temple uh, will have to be rebuilt, or whatever form that will take, which I'll explain in a moment, before the midpoint. Of this seven-year period, okay. I don't believe it's going to be divinely sanctioned. Uh, I believe it, you know, uh, that it's going to be some, you know, part of an attempt to reinstate the old mosaic system, and presumably the the rebuilding will be most likely spearheaded by Orthodox Jews, you know, seeking to re- reestablish a a holy place for Levitical sacrifices and other temple rituals. Has been prescribed uh, <clears throat> in the Torah. Now, it's been. Um, let me say just a bit about the term naos. That English translations they render it as as temple, and it can be a little bit misleading the the English term because it's often assumed by interpreters that, you know, in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, some colossal Solomaic-like temple complex has to be rebuilt. That's not the case. Uh, The term for temple here, again, in verse 4, naos, uh, it does not require a, 
a large temple complex, okay? It can actually refer to something much simpler, like a tent-like structure, or even the inner sanctuary, okay? So such a, um, and, and this type of structure, by the way, I mean, this could be erected in like a matter of weeks, you know, maybe maybe months, or maybe even less than a few weeks, okay? If, if we're described, if, if if Naos is referring to a more of a tent-like structure, inner sanctuary, some type of construction, think, I mean, you know, we think of, wow, you know, a temple being built on the Temple Mount or something like that. And we think of all the, the geopolitical dynamics behind that or the absurdity even behind that. Um, well, if you think about it, just over 100 years ago, <laughs> right, it would have been, it would have been difficult to, you know, fathom a reconstituted state of Israel back in their land. Um, nevertheless, as part of God's providential purposes, it did happen in 1948. So that fact, that awesome sovereign fact, I mean, that should inspire confidence in us. When when we read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, we don't try to explain it away. It can't possibly be a future temple. I mean, think of all the geopolitical opposition that would have. Well, the state of Israel kind of had some opposition, right? Uh, but it did happen in 1948. So, uh, <clears throat> hey, a, there will be a future Jewish temple that will be rebuilt. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go with God's... You know, God's sovereignty on this one. <laughs> uh, so, and, you know, currently Islam's Dome of the Rock, of course, is located on the Temple Mount, you know, making this fulfillment of this prophecy. Again, very, yeah, it's very difficult to imagine, right? But again, with God, all things are possible. I mean, you know, perhaps some some peace accord between Israel, Muslims will permit Orthodox Jews to build a sanctuary beside or even upon the Temple Mount. All right, so listen, I mean, I'm not, I, it's going to happen. However, it's going to materialize. I, I, I'm going to accept the plain reading of scripture that there's going to, one day there's going to be some type of construction, uh, temple construction, where the Antichrist uh, will be revealed and use that to appropriate for his own blasphemous glory. Okay, so getting back to let's getting back to the uh, the referent of the temple. You know, is this a referent to a physical, literal temple or a spiritual temple? And of course, historicists, uh, you know, rather than taking God's temple, quote God's temple in this text in verse four, uh, in uh, in its normal, natural, natural, customary sense. And in my view, without any indication that this is symbolic or or figurative or spiritual, so historicist interpreters they just they deny that Paul intends a literal future temple in Second Thessalonians chapter two verse four. Right? Well, uh, his, again, historicism you know claims that that Paul, of course, if they 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 can deny a literal temple, right? But they have to affirm something. And what what do they affirm? Well, they they take Paul's reference of a temple. They they you know I think the most common interpretation that I've come across is that they they take it to refer 
kind of metaphorically or figuratively to the church, that when Paul says God's temple, what he's really saying is uh, God's church. And one of the most common arguments, of course, is that, well, uh, you know, Paul elsewhere where he uses the term temple it means a church. Therefore, he must be meaning a church uh, or the sense of a church or the object, the referent of a church in this case. <clears throat> well, this is mistaken for uh, the following reasons. And more specifically, the, the this reasoning uh, commits what uh, I'm going to explain are word fallacies or lexical fallacies. What I'm going to do right now is I want to respond to the historicist fallacies here. And, you know, this would be kind of brief. And then I want to get into more of the uh, the other arguments showing that, you know, it can't be a, a spiritual or a spiritual sense, but, but, but Paul has in mind here a more literal sense of the term. So first of all, Paul, Paul in his other letters, first of all, he, he actually doesn't always use this term to refer to the church. That's mistaken number one by his sources who say that. Uh, he uses it in five other term, uh, five other instances. Um, now, indeed, he does use a term in certain figurative context. Okay. However, to import, well, let me let me make this point. Let's just assume that Paul, in these other five other instances in the New Testament where he uses the term naos, let's just assume he he refers to the church in those instances, okay? Well, they're committing a fallacy because they're importing this figurative meaning of naos into a completely unrelated context here in this eschatological context of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay, that's that's called a fallacy. You can't you don't do that. If you want sound interpretation, you don't go to other passages in the Bible, first of all, that are not even related to uh, another context, and then you imp- lift that context up, you know, port it back into a certain co- target context. That's just fallacious. It's done all the time. It's done all the time, but it's f- still fallacious. Now, and I have argued in the past that historicists cannot stay in the text. They have to go outside of the context to try to import some spiritual meaning into Naal's temple. Uh, and <clears throat> now, someone has argued that, for example, Greg Bill. Greg Bill has written a, a very well-known uh, commentary on the book of Revelation. He's well-known uh, interpreter of God's word. He's a well-known scholar. And I just disagree with a lot of his hermeneutical principles and his approach to the book of Revelation and eschatology. Particularly, he is a historicist, okay? And some have pointed out, well, Greg Bill, he begins in the text, in Second Thessalonians chapter 4, or chapter 2. And they'll say, well, Greg Bill, he begins with the context by his analysis of apostasia, which can mean a religious defection or a political uh, insurrection. That's what Bill argues. And he 
and and he says, well, you know this this reference of apostasy can refer back to Daniel eight eleven or Daniel chapter eleven verses thirty to forty five, and then Bill concludes that the apostasy is a religious defection that is triggered by the Antichrist persecuting the covenant community, i.e., the church. Well, okay, that's I actually agree with that. <laughs> Uh, I agree with Greg Bill on that. Here's the mistake. He makes this unwarranted leap by thinking, oh, just because, you know, that somehow, because the apostasy refers to religious defection, that means the temple is the church. Again, there's no, I, there's no connection. It's, it's, a, it's a complete, like, non sequitur. It's like, how do you make that? I mean, even my book, in my book, Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord, I have a, a section there, there, <clears throat> And I argue that the apostasy, and there's different interpretations of what the apostasy is. And I, I think I made a good case that no, it's the apostasy is a a discernible future apostasy uh, within the professing, not the possessing, but the professing church, uh, where, when the Antichrist is revealed and there's going to be persecution, the mark of the beast, et cetera, and people are going to apostatize. Now, I don't believe they were ever saved in the first place. They're just going to be shown to be professors of of the faith, not possessors of the faith. And I I agree with Greg Bill that this the Antichrist, that's, that's going to be triggered, this apostasy, this religious defection is going to be triggered by the Antichrist. Um, persecuting the this this uh, I don't use the term covenant community. Uh, I think, but well, new covenant community, yes, that is the church. But again, Greg Bill makes the unwarranted leap. It's like my question is okay, but what's the evidence that the temple is literal, right? Well, guess what? When you press that, then he has to go outside, and other historians have to go outside the context, and then that's that's when they start committing these these lexical word fallacies. So, <clears throat> so okay, uh, let's see here. And by the way, the you know when they say, well, you know, Paul refers. Paul uses not us in the sense of uh, the ter- uh, the sense of a church in other contexts, or it actually will say in every instance they use the term nos. And again, it's uh, not true. Uh, even even in uh, the book of um, even in Acts, uh, Paul uses the term not us explicitly to refer to. Uh, a literal temple. Now you might say, well, wait, wait, Paul didn't write the book of Acts. Yeah, that's true. Luke did. But Luke used Paul's sermons. In fact, uh, there's been a lot of scholarship that actually shows that the terminology that's used in Pauline sermons in the book of Acts are very similar to his actual language in his letters. But nevertheless, uh Luke still has Paul using naos. Uh, I think it's Acts uh, seventeen twenty four. So that's an instance as well. But still, I, that's not that's not my main point. Uh, the main point here is my second point here, and that's the second fallacy that that's being committed. And and, and I want to really ex- describe this fallacy because it's a it's larger than just this particular eschatological point. Every believer needs to be aware of this. Every interpreter needs to be aware of it. 
even well-known commentators and their commentaries commit this. It's called well, th- th- this can be called the what, the corpus fallacy. And you say, "Whoa, corpus fallacy! <laughs> What's this all about?" Uh, well, the corpus fallacy goes like this, and this is the, in, in this specific context, historicists commit this fallacy, <clears throat> and it basically it basically says something like, for example, let's let's use Paul, the Apostle Paul. Paul, you know, the argument goes, well, Paul uses X term this way, or no? Okay, let me back up here. Paul uses X term in X sense eight times, all right? So he uses a particular term in a particular sense eight times. Therefore, he must use it the same way the ninth time. It's actually a very absurd use of reasoning. You know, let's forget context. Let's forget common sense tells you that you can't just count noses. You don't count noses when you're doing word studies, but uh, I'm going to get a little bit more absurd here to illustrate this because I want to really drive home what's going on here. So I'm going to use this analogy. Now, think of this, okay? Think of all the letters you have written in your life, right? Uh, think of all the letters you have ever written, all the emails you have written, all the papers in school, anything you have possibly written in your entire life of every type of genre as well, right? Uh, you, you would have easily been, have written millions of words, millions of words, right? Scores of genres, scores of contexts. And then someone comes along and, and takes, you know, one little five-page high school history paper that you wrote, and they went through there and they counted a few words that you used, and then they concluded that, Oh, since you never used the word car in that paper, therefore, you know, you didn't know what the word car meant or you never, the word car was not in your vocabulary, your total vocabulary. Or let me, let me use this uh, point or analogy. Uh, Again, using the same high school paper. Let's say you use the word bark eight times to refer to the sound of a dog. So you in in this high school paper you used the word bark eight times to refer to a sound of a dog. Therefore, you know what? When you wrote that paper, you weren't aware of another meaning of the word bark, the skin of a tree. Right? So if someone said, "Well, you know, uh weren't you aware of this other meaning?" Of course you were, right? But the context didn't allow you to write it. Or maybe maybe you did use the word bark, this other sense of the term in your high school paper. And someone came along and said, no, you can't. No, you, these seven, seven times you use bark to refer to a sound of a dog. Therefore, the eighth time you cannot use a different meaning. You, have, you can't use the skin of a tree. You have to be consistent and use the sound of a dog. Right? Well, what if the context in your high school paper required you to use the sense of the skin of a tree. Do you see what I'm saying? This is called the corpus fallacy. And, and getting back to our biblical example, the Apostle Paul would have produced voluminous amounts of documents in his lifetime. Not just, you know, not just the, the, the very small literary 
uh, documents. Oh, but by the way, not just literary documents, right? But oral discourse as well. I mean, obviously, he would have used oral discourse more than documents. I mean, we we talk more than we write. Well, I think maybe some most of us. So to take such a small sampling as historicists do of Paul's letters found in the New Testament, five instances. Now think about. It. Now, there's six instances of naos, but the five instances, right, referring to, let's say it's a figurative sense, and then arguing, well, you know, or or at least concluding or implying that, well, Paul, Paul wasn't aware of a, he wasn't aware of a literal sense of naos, temple. That is complete absurdity, folks. Paul in, Paul in Greek-speaking context would have used the term naos, to refer to a literal temple or a sanctuary thousands of times to, to argue that, well, again, um, trying to make this extrapolation as if, you know, again, Paul, he uses it five times figuratively, therefore he has to use it in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 figuratively is just simply absurd. And this is this is the corpus fallacy because you're limiting. Um, and by the way, this this is not some technical term or or whatnot. I mean, this would have been a, again a very common term. You hear the superficial lexical argument all the time, and in 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 other theological contexts, commentaries are notorious for this type of of what passes as exegesis. So, uh, and listen, at the end of the day. Historicists have to demonstrate in the particular context that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, that naos is figuratively, like, for example, referring to the church, not a literal temple. They have not demonstrated that. And that is why, and they know they can't argue it in the context. That is why they have to go outside of of Second Thessalonians and start counting noses. And that's where they get themselves in trouble with these lexical fallacies. Okay, I want to conclude this show by citing, you know, in, in my research over the years uh, on this topic, I've come across uh, three New Testament scholars, uh, two of them are Thessalonian scholars, who have... I, I think have given really, really good reasons why we should see this as a a, uh, a literal temple. And I want to begin with Colin Nickel. Uh, Colin Nickel is a Thessalonian scholar. He's the one that arguing that <clears throat> that um, Michael the Archangel is the restrainer, and he really, in my view, has in his article it was just really a smoking gun argument evidence for this which is of course um uh why uh commentaries on Thessalonians today is, are referencing his his uh seminal arg- um uh, artic- article but it's also in his monograph from hope to, to despair in Thessalonica situating first and second Thessalonians and I'll 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 leave the bibli- bibliographical information in the show notes but Colin Nickel uh, 
adduces four reasons, four good reasons showing that Paul has in mind here a literal temple. So just quickly reading these. Number one, he says, since the author is contradicting the false eschatological claim of chapter 2, verse 2c, that's the last part of verse 2, we would expect a concrete, observable, and conspicuous event. Very good point. Great point. Uh, number two, he says, the use of kathise, uh, that is, takes his seat, seems more natural uh, or naturally to suggest a literal physical temple. Again, a great point. Um, yeah, the... Um, so, in the, and then two more reasons. Number three, he says the definite articles clearly allude to a particular temple of the true God, which can only, re- of course, refer to the Jerusalem temple. A great, another great point. Um, number four, the immediately preceding reference to Stavasma, that's translated object of worship, favors a material temple. So that that's a great point right there, because that makes no sense to use savasma in terms of the the church, the figurative. That doesn't really make any sense. So that's from his uh, monograph from Hope to Spare in Thessalonica, situating First and Second Thessalonians, one of the the best works on on First and Th- First and Second Thessalonians out there. I you, you need to have a it's a little, it's expensive. And it's technical, uh, but um, you should you should own a copy of that if you're interested in First and Second Thessalonians. All right, another scholar, Daniel Wallace. Uh, I'm including him because he provides uh, interesting reasoning here. He says he quotes: "It seems that by 63 uh, A.D., the date that I would assign to First Timothy." The idiom, quote, God's temple had shifted in Christian usage sufficiently that a metaphorical nuance had become the norm. However, it is equally significant that all of the references in the Corinthian correspondence seem to require an explanation readily supplied by Paul in order to make the metaphorical sense clear. Thus, for Paul, at least, one might chart his development as follows. 50 AD, a literal notion is still in view, i.e. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. And then the mid-50s, a metaphorical notion is developed, but the shift has to be made explicit. And then in the, in the 60s, a metaphorical notion is clearly in place, requiring no explicit referential clue for this meaning. Great point. I, um, I'll leave his article. Actually, this is a... Uh, it's online. I can... I'll, I'll leave the um, the link in the show notes. So what Wallace is basically arguing that in Paul's earlier writings, he consistently more has this notion of a literal type of temple in view. And in his uh, later, uh, toward the end of his life, then you then he uh, expands his semantic range of this term. Uh, to include a metaphorical sense. And since, of course, Thessalonians, one of his very first letters, 
Uh, therefore, Wallace concludes that it's highly more likely that Paul has here a literal temple. And finally, I'll just want to quickly close with Gene Green, Gene L. Green, and uh, his argument. And uh, and this now, despite his interpretation that this is a reference to a literal temple, um, in he, in other words, he he doesn't believe he does believe that this is a literal temple, but he doesn't believe it's it's the one in Jerusalem. He believes it's one in Thessalonica. It's an argument. I don't agree with it. It has problems. I'm not going to address that here. But my point here is I'm um, drawing from his argument that it's a literal temple uh, by this one point he makes. This is an excellent point, and I, it militates against the metaphorical sense of the temple being the church. He says, he writes, quote, the orientation of the divine claims of the man of lawlessness is toward the world at large and not the church. Um, great point. I, almost a, just an obvious point. I mean, if, I, I didn't really think about that in one's, you know, in, 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 you know, vis-a-vis the argument of literal versus spiritual, but that's a great point that the orientation what you know? Look at the claims that the man of lawlessness is making. It's toward the world at large, and not not the church. Um, again, that's doesn't really argue for interpreting naos in in a metaphorical sense or a church sense, uh, but in a more literal physical sense. So, well, okay. Um, I hope those reasons have, you know, uh, I think they made a, a good case uh, for a literal physical temple. And <clears throat> uh, again, I'm a futurist. I believe in a future fulfillment of these events. You know, when I look at the context, particularly in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I see a, a literal antichrist and, of course, a literal temple uh, in view. And I just I just don't see the spiritual sense. I... Um, or the, the spiritual metaphorical uh, sense uh, being used by Paul. I think Paul clearly has in mind here a literal, uh, physical temple. Okay, thank you for listening. <laughs>